Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Zhao, and today I sit down with the ghost of fintech future, former mayor of fintech, serial investor, venture capitalist, tech stars exec, former Wall Streeter, and so much more, John Zanoff. John is the founder of Empire Startups, an 18,000-person strong fintech community, and now runs Stella Ventures, an early-stage-focused fintech VC. John is a fintech legend in New York, and we are very excited to welcome him not only to the podcast, but also to the Wharton Fintech Conference, taking place on April 22nd and 23rd. He'll be leading a panel called Building a Fintech, Lessons Learned, featuring execs from Finch, Pando, Intrinio, Public.com, and Mass Challenge Fintech. We have an incredible lineup of CEOs, founders, VCs, and more coming to this conference. You can check out the full list in the episode description. And if you're not wowed by the lineup our team put together, prove me wrong on Twitter. In today's episode, John and I have a great free-flowing conversation about Stella Ventures, why we're in the YOLO era of fintech, angel investing, the superpowers of Twitter, why coachability is the most important trait in a founder, his investing checklist, and one of my favorite rapid fire rounds ever. John has just a crazy caffeine habit that you'll have to learn about. All right, let's get started and enjoy the show. John, welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is great having on the ghost of fintech future and often cited mayor of fintech, spending years galvanizing the fintech community. Thanks for having me, but I'm not the mayor. Listen, I did my two terms and I passed the torch <laughs> to Mengzi. If you're not following that guy on Twitter, I don't know what you're doing, but now I'm retired. I'm more of a hobbyist in fintech these days. <laughs> Must be nice. And yes, of course, I follow him. I also will support that. I encourage all of our listeners to give Manxi Lu a follow. He is fantastic and probably, yes, the new mayor of fintech. And it's also great having you on, John, ahead of the Wharton Fintech Conference on April 22nd and 23rd, which we'll get to later. And I will, of course, link in the episode description. So before we get to all of that, John, where are you right now at the moment and where have you been quarantining? We're in Hell's Kitchen, New York. You know, New York is the capital of of fintech. We weren't going to let a little virus scare us away. For those in in Miami, love the mayor, (laughs) but just don't forget that there's no take backs if you move to Miami. (laughs) I love it. And uh, yeah, the turf wars have been pretty fun to watch unfold. You know, the SF Bay Area versus Austin versus Miami versus New York. And of course, we had Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami on the podcast a few months ago. He put on the hard sell asking Miguel and I to study abroad in Miami (laughs) if we get the chance. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So to begin, obviously, you have strong reputation in the industry. But for some of our listeners, they may not be familiar with your background and kind of your journey to fintech. Can you walk us through your background, you know, getting started with Empire Startups? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, that was 10 years ago I founded Empire. And at the time, there was nowhere to turn. If you were a fintech founder, if you were just a fintech enthusiast, there was nowhere to turn. And I don't talk about it a lot, but I was actually working in one of the largest investment banks in the world. And and now they're actually known for being a prolific fintech company and a prolific fintech Mm -hmm. investor. But at the time, I mean, they had a build-build mentality. It was you were in your chair for 12 to 16 hours a day, and you had absolutely no idea what was happening outside the walls. 
I mean, that's what it was. Like, mm-hmm. if you were to head outside of the walls, it was like to run to grab uh, espresso because you were putting in another, a second shift of 10 hours. And so <laughs> I wanted to meet a few really inspirational founders and just wanted to learn from them. And so I browbeat my LinkedIn buddies to come. I bought pizza for everyone. I convinced some firm to let us borrow a conference room. And we all just got together to learn from this founder that was working on really disrupting the front office. And you know, Empire grew super organically from there. It wasn't this, oh, I've got a vision for this company. It was simply like-minded people coming together in the community. And of course, you know, fast forward to today, it's the largest community of fintech entrepreneurs in the world with over 18,000 entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I don't think of it as much of a community anymore because now there's so many more resources today versus 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think of it more as a platform. It's the largest fintech jobs board on the planet. It's a way to find out what events are happening and, and track recent deals. So it's more of a platform or utility for the community than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so how can people get involved with Empire Startups? Obviously, you mentioned career resources, events, et cetera. How can they get involved and you know, what else is available to them? Just sit up at empirestartups.com. It's synonymous with FinTech Week on both coasts. But like I said, if you're a FinTech company, a really FinTech company, two hardest things probably are getting the word out about what you're doing and recruiting and retaining talent. And therefore, we've invested in in the jobs board and, and a bunch of digital channels to help get the word out about exciting fintech. And I do have a follow-up. I mean, you've been in fintech here for so long and, of course, building empire startups in New York, which lost to the startup battle you know, to, to SF in the Bay Area for a while, but has made a roaring comeback. What have you kind of seen as some of the major changes and positive momentum in New York over the last really just five to six years, especially in the fintech space? Well, if we look at at SF first and the flywheel that is created where successful founders go pollinate venture firms or pollinate the next wave of startups or even support some larger growth stage startups, you never really had that in New York at least a decade ago. But now what you are starting to see it And the biggest shift over the last 10 years has been the incumbents finally taking a look at what's happening outside of their walls and becoming the buyers, the purchasers, the investors in early stage fintech. And so everything that's evolved and the strength of New York, it is now granted, there's a lot of innovation theater going on with the banks, but their general appetite, whether it be CVC support, studios, labs, accelerator programs, but overall, it's just it's just both capital and an appetite to consume fintech products has been a real game changer to bolster New York. I mean, obviously the banking capital, but to truly become the fintech capital, we needed the incumbents to start looking outside their walls. And under pressure over the last 10 years for both bottom end and top line, they've really become consumers of fintech. Right. And of course, with all of these great companies and products being built, they need capital specifically venture capital, to keep up with the massive ecosystem of the Valley. So you left senior roles at traditional financial institutions, got heavily involved with Techstars and Rise, and then, of course, launched Stella Ventures. Can you share with our listeners what Stella Ventures is and the companies it's aiming to invest in? Happy to. We skipped this this wild step that just never happens, which is I was working for the largest asset manager in the world, and I was working for some of the most prestigious investment banks. And somehow I found my way to venture, which you know might be another podcast because it's a very actually difficult it's a difficult transition. 
But fast forwarding, I spent the last four years investing in early stage fintech at Techstars, leading 28 investments in fintech for Techstars here in New York City. Had the opportunity to work alongside of some of the absolute best early stage investors in the world. You know, the founders like Brad Feld and David Cohn of Techstars. And what's probably most essential at the early stage is that these investments weren't just pre-revenue, but oftentimes pre-product. And it is the fintech subject matter expertise and availability of capital at that earliest stage that is the dearth. And so launched Stella Ventures late last year. It's a $20 million pre-seed and seed stage fund focused on fintech in the US and Canada. The advantage comes from being that first call in fintech thanks to having the largest fintech platform in the world, which we talked about with a membership of over 18,000 entrepreneurs. And we're also backed by top fintech founders from companies like Simple, TransferWise, Kencho, Funding Circle, amongst others in addition to the chief investment strategy officer of Techstars. And then the last thing I'd say is that, you know, we have boots on the ground in just about every major ecosystem in North America, thanks to having scouts in places like Boston, DC, LA, Vancouver, Toronto, and others. And so if you are, and we can talk more about thesis, but if you are an early stage fintech founder, we'd love to learn more about what you're working on. Absolutely. And one follow-up there. So you mentioned the scout system. Can you tell us a little bit about the scout system, how you went about building it and recruiting scouts? Of course. So one thing that we spent some time thinking about is that when you've developed a network and venture is becoming a bit of a media business, and when you think about that, it's reach. It's ultimately how do you drive top of funnel and awareness to make sure you get first crack at a particular deal. And over the last decade, I've forged relationships with phenomenal founders. Founders where at the time, we're at the seed stage. When you think about companies like Quovo or Money Lion that presented at Empire Startups at the seed stage and obviously went on to be tremendous successes, how do we leverage that to create a flywheel for attracting additional founders? And that is the need for a scout program. A scout program is very popular these days, evolving usually with later stage companies that are pursuing maybe operators to bring in diligence expertise to look at deals. But when I think of hot pre-seed and seed stage deals, one of the biggest risks for us to mitigate is just timing risk. Forget the high signal deals of a Stanford founder, you know, Stanford third time founder raising a fund. It's not about those high signal deals, but the best deals move quickly. If you're going to get in those deals, maybe you have two weeks mm -hmm. to take action. And so it's hugely important to have boots on the ground in local ecosystems to compete with larger and honestly better resource funds. The other thing that I'd say is, to some extent, it's a democratization of pizza. I, I can't believe I just used that, let alone on the Wharton <laughs> podcast, the D word. I hate to use the D word, but, mm -hmm. but venture is changing. And venture is, should no longer be for, I'd say, the 1% of the 1%. And so, exposing dozen fantastic founders at an early stage who will share in in carry of Stella Ventures and deals in Stella Ventures is is really the future. I believe in scout programs and the eventual deal by deal mm -hmm. carry that I'm sure Angelist and, and Carter will bring us the future of, of venture capital. Great. And yeah, I'm a big believer in the scout system. There's so many interesting ways. I'm, oh my God, I almost just said the D word myself. <laughs> there are so many great ways for this to provide access. Listen, if I don't hear some shade on Twitter about my <laughs> use of democratization, then I'm going to, I'm going to question the reach of the Wharton FinTech podcast. <laughs> I'll start building fake accounts as we speak to make sure 
we're generating <laughs> some shade. So one thing that you did mention that you'd like to cover is your investing thesis. Can you kind of unpack Stella's investing thesis at the moment and how you're thinking about investing in this next wave of fintech? I'd be happy to. The first thing, tip for listeners, if a an investor comes on the program and is talking about their thesis and they just rattle off the strategy of their last portfolio company, be sure to <laughs> put their feet to the fire a little bit. It tends to be how folks talk about thesis is they talk about their last trade or, right. or their last deal. But listen, I'd actually say, I'll give you a non-answer first, which is at pre-seed, it's very difficult to be thesis-driven. You know, Thesis-driven, you're talking about how the market is going to evolve in in five to 10 years, what the market is going to look like when a liquidity event is expected. And at a pre-seed stage, that's just not the rubric that you're looking at for evaluating the strength of an entity. You know, they're focused on ramen noodles and how they're going to coax you know, their developer to come full-time. They're not focused on necessarily what the market would look like in, in 10 years. But with that sort of soapbox behind us, Stella looks at, at an evolving set of themes. So I wouldn't say we're thesis-driven, but they're themes that we get very, very excited about. And Stella invests in... in you know, obviously the vertical, but just about every sub-vertical within fintech, and both on the consumer and the enterprise side, and and in each one of those sub-verticals, and for each type of consumer, the themes are going to be varied. But I'll give you some. One of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how the consumer is changing in consumer fintech, and to give you some data on what's changing is we're now in what I'd call the YOLO era of fintech. <laughs> And to put right. data behind, and I'm not just talking about, you know, Robinhood, quote unquote, investors. If you look mm-hmm. at how folks are choosing a new checking account, and this is a, yeah. a shout out to Cornerstone who produced tremendous research, but 17% are picking a checking account just based on something new and 8% based on the brand. And so I'd say that 25% of new checking account consumers are just playing like, heck, let's just try something. It's YOLO fintech. And so I think how consumers are looking at fintech products, their willingness to try is going to significantly alter the basic unit economics of the game moving forward. Both those trends, I'd argue, lower acquisition costs and lower the LTV. And so as far as the theme, you know, what does banking look like when consumers are willing to try exponentially more financial products on a whim than ever before. And when the switching costs of having these multiple products approach zero. So what does the market look like? What does fraud look like? What does a feature set to support customers look like when those things happen are themes that that we're looking at now? I can't say I've heard YOLO FinTech yet. I absolutely love that. (laughs) That might be the title of this episode now that I think of it. (laughs) And of course, shout out to Cornerstone. We just had Ron Shevlin on the podcast. He was fantastic. They do do some great research and just kind of a follow-up to what you were saying. I completely agree. I'm a perfect use case for YOLO FinTech. I think I am filing 19 1099s in my tax returns this year. I have so many different FinTechs and you know, of course, I think Plaid is the big winner here being the connective tissue for all of these apps. And when Lex Soakland came on the show last month, he was just saying, you know, fintechs are all now building all of these just A plus bots for one or two use cases. And it's getting so, so specific. And, you know, ideally the consumer is the one who wins. Consumer win. And, you know, you're absolutely right. The infrastructure players are the first ones mm-hmm. that are making money hand over fist. You know, you don't, 
you mentioned Plaid. You can also look at, at the success that Apex Clearing has seen. Absolutely. They're just on the heels of what are very bright and very talented fintech entrepreneurs. The first company to make money is Apex Clearing. We had their chief product officer, Dustin Kirkland, breaking down <laughs> how they do fractional trading 101, which of course got released like about a week or two before the GameStop fiasco. I was getting yelled at on my Twitter, on my LinkedIn, threats to me, <laughs> threats to Dustin. I was like, oh my God, it was a pretty wild moment. And yeah, I agree. I think the companies that are just building the pipes, the picks and shovels, if you will, are fantastic. And another one that comes to mind is Taxbit, who just raised this just ridiculous $100 million Series A to be kind of the crypto tax platform for both consumers and enterprises across all of these different apps. Hundred million dollar Series A. I think we can just we can just drop the mic there. Right, it's over. It, it will. Ne- I hope yep. it will never be topped. And it's <laughs> in, an insane list. It's like Bill Ackman, Coinbase Ventures, PayPal Ventures, the Winklevi, of course. <laughs> are, we're all in it. So you know, you're seeing so many fintechs, of course, come across your desk through the community, through your scouts, through tech stars, etc. When these companies first come across your desk. How are you thinking about the business? Is there any you know, framework that you've built? So without question, I have a, a rubric. I wouldn't call it overly proprietary. At the highest level, it is very standard team, product, the market, and obviously looking at, at deal dynamics. But when specific with the team, I think a lot of founders, for the founders listening, coachability is absolutely part of the rubric that, that we're looking at. And not every venture capital is going to be looking at coachability. For us, we're hands-on. We yeah, Everyone says they want to add value, but Stella Ventures truly wants to be that first call, not just when you're thinking about raising capital, but for our founders that need support. And if a founder doesn't have the intellectual curiosity when faced with objections about how they think, then it's not to say they won't be a tremendously successful founder. They just may not be an optimal founder for Stella Ventures or a founder that we can directly add alpha. But I'll give you two other, you know, outside of that rubric, I mean, the only other thing I'd say about that standard rubric, and especially for sort of new investors, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that, is that we're memorializing not just how we think about the deal at the deal time, but how it evolves over time. And I think that one of the big challenges or one of the things that takes quite a bit of discipline if you were going to be an investor, is to eliminate hindsight bias and, and proximity bias. Proximity bias, just generically saying that you're very close to a founder, you're working alongside, and sometimes you don't see the flaws. And so memorializing what you saw as strengths and weaknesses across time in a time series, hugely important for deciding when to follow on and, and obviously making sure that you're learning for future investments. But the two, as far as rubric goes, and the two ways that I'll look at a new deal that I think may help new investors, the first thing that I'm always trying to do is I'm trying to determine just what the hardest part about this specific business is. And for every sub-vertical and every customer set, you're going to have a different set of unique challenges. And those unique challenges are going to be evolving over time. Something that was very difficult for a fintech company to get off the ground five years ago may not be the same challenge. So in that initial 20-minute meeting, it's to understand the business, of course, what they're working on, but then to get on the same page about truly what the hardest things about this particular business are. And if we can get on the same page, 
then I can understand the risks, but I also can have a much higher level understanding of the strength of this founder. And if we can get aligned on that, I know that we can work together and I can help that founder. So just what is the hardest thing about the business tends to be what's in my mind. The other thing I think about, and I'll credit another founder of Techstars, David Brown, for this, but this is the get shit done KPI. And how the get shit done KPI came about is also, and you'll hear this as a theme, eliminating biases when it comes to venture investing. But different founders will accomplish things in very different ways. And it would be a mistake and a miss on my part to compare how a founder is trying to get something done with how I would get something done. It it really doesn't matter their approach, their skill set, how they communicate. What matters is ultimately, can they get shit done? And maybe an example is just that founder who is a much different CEO than I would be. Maybe they don't communicate in the same manner. Maybe it's, you know, they're too soft or maybe they're too hard. What ultimately matters is can they get shit done? And that's how I'm looking at the CEOs. It's a difficult one, obviously, to put metrics around, but it's a good framework to remove biases when you try to say, well, I'm a KPI geek. I'm going to push this founder on their KPIs. That's not the only way to run a business. Yeah, that was really insightful, John. Thank you. I love the get shit done KPI. Anytime I had to make hirings at my last job or even at Wharton FinTech, when we picked the next people to run this podcast in the coming year, that's really what I cared about. I needed that scrappiness, that aggression, that just willingness to get shit done. So one follow-up, you know, you mentioned it's usually these 20-minute pitch meetings. What are some of the traits of the best pitches that you see? Are there, you know, specific things that you can parse out from there where you see this get shit done KPI? I think a couple of things. One, I make sure not to let any founder get away with some thinking that they need to find investors that truly understand their business. That's a crutch. At the pre-seed stage, communication is probably the most important aspect of your business. And you hear a lot on Twitter about complaining that a venture capitalist is suggesting that a pre-seed or an angel investor is complaining that a business is too early. When I think back, I'm generally very, I like to think I'm very transparent with feedback for founders. But where I'm not as transparent is when too early simply means you're not good enough at communicating your business. And communicating what the hardest aspects of your businesses are, communicating what you think might be defensible technologies, communicating why you're excited about this and why you think this can be a very, very large business. So too early doesn't mean traction at the pre-seed stage. Too early often means you simply haven't put enough thought behind this. And feedback of, you know what, if I was going to bet on this space, you wouldn't be the horse that I would bet on because you haven't spent enough time thinking about it. That's where I, uh, some investors, even the most transparent, even the most blunt of investors, I think sometimes they find themselves just saying, you know what, you're too early. You're too early for me, so I'm going to pass. So hopefully that helps. I think that's just about, the question was you know, mistakes in that 20-minute meeting, pitching your business. Take it on your shoulders. Your goal is to have an investor understand your business as quickly in that 20-minute meeting as possible. So you can shift to questions and you can shift to brainstorming about what are the biggest barriers or what are the biggest hurdles or challenges in this business and how could we work together to create a massive business? That should be your goal. 
if you can do it in 10 minutes, try to do it in eight minutes and try to do it in five minutes. And that's the way to unlock capital when you're hearing you're too early, but you're talking to pre-seed and, and angels. Now, that's really insightful. And on that note of angels, something that I do want to discuss, and again, this is always on Twitter, Twitter getting a lot of mentions today. It seems that everyone is getting involved in angel investing or trying to get involved, which of course makes sense. If you're meeting these great founders, it's easier than ever to invest at early stages. Shout out to platforms like Republic that are helping people angel and do similar checks even more. But you know, it's a risky, risky asset class. And I think people won't realize until a few years out from now that this boom in angel investing might not end as greatly as some hope. You have invested quite a bit. I'm sure you've had a lot of angel investments over the years. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see angels make in their first investments? The first advice I give to any angel is that when you're starting off, this is leveraged learning, and that's how you should look at it. I think there are a lot of philosophical discussions on social media about how to create generational wealth and do we change the waterline for accredited investors and you know, you see these monster. The talk today was on was on Clubhouse. Their their recent rumored valuations and the value that's being created. Yeah, not just the elite, but their first hundred early adopters were also very elite, wealthy investors who were able to invest in their in their previous rounds. So it's very much a rich get richer. And how can we pass that down from a financial wellness standpoint to the to the ninety nine percent? But let's step away from I think that philosophical argument, which I a hundred percent agree with. And I won't use the D word and just talk about if you're starting to angel invest. <laughs> that as you're angel investing, you need to be in it for the love of the game and be very hungry to learn. And so some of your rubric as an angel should be, can you forge, you know, Republic is a great platform, but are you going to get updates from the founders? Are you going to learn from the founders? Are you going to be able to track them? Can you help them in any meaningful way? Meaning, can you unlock your resources to help them even more? Those are the ways that I'd be thinking about an, an angel investment. And then from, you talked about risk, and I'd say unpacking a little bit more, just risk-adjusted return. If we just look at simple math of, of private equity at this early stage, and then nine out of the 10 angel investments are going to zero, and one out of 10 is going to be a 10x. And the result is you just took on a bunch of risk to make zero dollars. <laughs> and how venture math works is that one or two out of your 100 investments or angel investments are going to be this 100x, this, this wild you know, moonshot or home run. And that's going to return the fund or that's going to help you outperform the public markets with your investment. Hopefully you outperform public markets by 20 to 30% to make it worth it, which is the equivalent of that one to two 100x returns. If that's venture math and you sort of understand that simple math, you know, you don't want to make just a single bet. When you're looking for one to two per hundred to be a hundred X, you can't possibly be looking at, at. So what that means is when you think about allocation, when you think about your check size as an angel, make sure that you are diversifying. I'd encourage you for learning to be diversifying across subverticals and across customers and, and even geographies that you can learn as much as possible. I think the ROI of learning is far more if you're a new investor than the actual returns on the portfolio. And then the last thing I'd say is just ask questions. 
everyone's ignorant. There's so many edge cases. I mean, one of the things that I love about FinTech and I love about venture capital is that there are, for an engineer like myself, there are endless edge cases. And don't assume because you have a question that you're the only one pushed to get those answers. If nothing else, you're educating the founder on what they should be articulating more clearly based on your questions. Mm -hmm. Now, that's great. And personally, I've just started angel investing. I had one in 2016, you know, a friend from college started a company. I think a a small part of it was, you know, just this FOMO aspect. Oh my God, this is going to be the only angel opportunity I get for a long time in my life. I have to take advantage. And then, you know, as more opportunities have come up now that I've been working on this podcast and, you know, I'm a little bit later in my career, I think, like you said, I'm focused a lot more on the value that it can provide from a learning, from a networking standpoint, and kind of trying not to just do it as a pure money-making device. Because like you said, I mean, the math is not really in my favor, especially, you know, given probably a low volume of deals for the next few years. You know, the student budget is not generous to angel investments, unfortunately. (laughs) So one thing I do want to touch on, because I myself, you know, had to do a lot of reading when it came to this, is reading the term sheets and structuring term sheets and deal sheets for these startups. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, prospective angel investors, how they should think about the term sheets that they look at and any landmines that they should be looking out for? So I'm going to obfuscate the question a little bit and apologies for that. No problem. Truthfully, I don't think you can listen to a podcast to learn about landmines in a term sheet. The advice I give instead is once you have a term sheet that you're looking at, what you're almost always curious about is how prevalent are these particular terms? Is this straight down the center of the fairway? Or is this something that I can either negotiate or is uncommon? And when you're in that situation, granted, I'm very fortunate to have the network that I have and be in New York. But these days, and we'll give Twitter another shout out, I think if you reach out to any experienced venture capitalist or angel on Twitter with a DM, you don't even need to know them and say, listen, I'm looking at a term sheet. I could really use your help. I'd love to know how often you're seeing this particular term. I can all but guarantee you, you're going to get great insights. And so the feedback is, and this goes for founders and angel investors, you know, in terms of what terms to avoid, I don't think you're going to learn that with a podcast, but in terms of the learning on the streets, um, go to your network mm-hmm. or even not your network. Folks that are you know, early stage emerging managers are more than happy to help you and give context on whether a certain term that you're seeing is absolutely standard and just you know, sign it. Or that's tell that person to go, you know what, you're, there's no way you're signing it. You can, you can get that feedback right quick thanks to, uh, thanks to today's network, thanks to you know, platforms like Twitter or even, even Empire Startups. I'd say that the thing that I do see in terms of mistakes and from founders, you know, that you'd like to say, you know, be very careful with valuation and taking valuations that are so high, it makes it very difficult to justify your next round of funding. But at the end of the day, no matter how much we talk about that, a founder will always bias the prestige of the investor and the valuation. Taking a $10 million valuation versus a $15 million valuation because they think it'll set them up for future success, it just doesn't happen. And so what I would say is if you are doing that, just be very careful to surround yourself 
with advisors and mentors who are going to be there to support you because some of those, I'd say tier one phenomenal VCs, uh, they're not going to have the time to cancel their next call and pick up your call to support you. So as far as your sphere of influence, the bigger mistake when it comes, so you have a term sheet, you're going to get this seed round done uh, or pre-seed round done. Be greedy with the folks that you're surrounding yourself with. And the worst thing that you can do is cut out folks who've been helpful from your round versus going after just folks that you think are, are quote unquote influential. You really want to, at the seed stage, have folks that are going to roll their sleeves up and get shit done along with you. That's really good advice, John. Completely agree. I I, I think nobody should underestimate the power of the Twitter DM and the openness for people to help out. And of course, getting really strong value-add people on your cap table that early on is so crucial. There's been wealth of knowledge shared so far in this episode, and there will, of course, be more knowledge to be shared on April 22nd and 23rd, where the Wharton FinTech Conference will be happening. And I only mention this because you will be moderating a panel called Building a FinTech Lessons Learned. And this will be featuring the founders of Finch, Pando, and Trino, as well as Katy Perry, VP of Marketing at Public.com, who's very popular on Twitter, and Devin Sherman of Mass Challenge FinTech. What are you most excited for for this panel? And what can our listeners who will be attending the conference expect? Firstly, year after year, the Wharton FinTech Conference is it's not your first year, but it's relatively new. And every year, the Wharton team is just upping their game. And this year looks absolutely spectacular. So I can't wait for the event. <laughs> if you haven't signed up, honestly, stop what you're doing. The rest of the podcast is not as important as you signing up for the Wharton FinTech Conference coming up in a few weeks. Love it. But as far as that particular panel, you know, what to expect? Listen, I'm moderating. This is where I have most of my fun. I am not letting these panelists agree on everything. And I'm not letting them Absolutely. simply tell, you know, shiny stories. Entrepreneurship is exceptionally hard. You don't do it because you want to get rich. You do it because you want to make a difference. And if we're not talking about the number of sleepless nights in either building companies or investing in companies and mistakes made, then, then I really haven't done my job. So can't wait for the panel and can't wait for the conference. I love that. John's panel will definitely be one I won't miss. I remember when we were putting our kind of original roster together and dream team for the panel, you were right up there at the top because we knew that you would not let any panelists off the hook. And I mean, the lineup is incredible. We have, you know, the CEO of Wealthfront, you know, Steve McLaughlin of Financial Technology Partners, executives from Cross River, Treasury Prime, Stash, Stripe, Newbank, Fundrise, Republic, Pipe, Bain Capital, McKinsey, the list goes on. I will link that as well in the episode description. So John, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. I think you're well familiar and well suited to answer these. Are you ready? I'm a little nervous. I'm not going to lie, but let's go. <laughs> All right. First one. First job you ever had? First job I ever had digging ditches on a construction site. <laughs> Where was this? Side of the highway? Uh, uh, pr pretty much. I grew up outside DC and, uh, and come from a, a long line of what I call blue collar entrepreneurs. Love it. All right. How about first fintech app you ever downloaded? Oh, um, you know, there was this crazy app called Movin. I think it's still alive. I love tapping to pay in my yellow cabs in New York City with my little moving dongle. <laughs> That's a great one. Now, how about who is your fintech hero? 
Oh, fintech heroes hard. I'm going to give you two cop out. You know what? I love the team. I know you have the team at fintech collective on, mm. I mean, fintech collective found Quovo found money lion found Rio research. Yeah. My favorite thing about that team is that they're not falling into this trap of you've got a word vomit on social media to establish <laughs> your position. They just stay under the radar and have found some fantastic companies. So I love the team of FinTech Collective. The other one, the OG Matt Harris at Bain. Very rare you find somebody as intelligent and successful as Matt, who's also as humble and as helpful for founders and, and emerging managers like myself. Yeah, that's a great one. Matt Harris is so fantastic. He's also a undercover, huge Grateful Dead fan, which I think just adds <laughs> to his mystique. He's extremely <laughs> successful. So how about next one? What is your unrealistic dream job? Unrealistic? I mean, come on, this is entrepreneurship. Anything's possible. <laughs> um, I, If I was not doing this, there's no question that I'd win the British Bake Off. There's just absolutely British Bake Off. Uh, no, there's just no question. <laughs> and I've been applying for Nailed It on Netflix over and over again. They're not responding to me. <laughs> but if I was not in fintech, I think I'd own a little cheesecake bake shop here in Hell's Kitchen. What is is cheesecake your best dish? What's the best pastry you got? I'm a bit of a connoisseur with the with the cheesecakes. Famous for a, a caramel turtle cheesecake and a peanut butter cup cheesecake. So if you're lucky, you know <laughs> when it's your birthday. You give me a call, we'll take care of it. I mean, cheesecake as well as key lime pie are my two favorite desserts by a mile. Absolutely love it. And uh, a classmate of mine. Never would have known if it wasn't for the podcast. That's great. A classmate of mine actually told me he has a blog where he has ranked all 70 cheesecakes at the Cheesecake Factory. He spent a full summer <laughs> dedicating his life to it. It's actually hilarious. Oh, wow. And he's a that's pretty not, witty that's writer. That's life in New Jersey for you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, it's real fun <laughs> times here at the Garden State Plaza. So <laughs> next question, what is your rough, you know, personal portfolio allocation? I'm so pot committed to fintech. It's scary. We've talked about <laughs> diversification as angel investors, but I've, I've spent my entire career. I mean, luckily, if you believe the Twitter sphere, everything's fintech. And so it should be, <laughs> I should be all, um, you know, just fine, but give you rough numbers. It's 10% real estate, 90% fintech. Wow. And, and like publicly and privately owned companies? A hundred percent private. Wow. So you don't have any like S and P, you know, Arc F, none of that. I spent a long time actually building front office trading technology. And I can tell you without a doubt, there are people in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts that are much smarter than you are trading the same stocks you are. And I'd love to and the unfair advantage to leverage the unfair advantage is data that is not public. And that data is coming from the from the, those private markets. That's as great of a as an argument as I've ever heard. All right, next one. What is the lamest fintech trend you've seen recently? Oh man, I I promised. I told so many people I'm not going to throw shade on the Wharton fintech podcast, and then you come with uh -oh. you know you come with questions like this. <laughs> this. I don't know about lamest. I'd say what we, but I don't want to be on the fence. What we're seeing is we're seeing themes repeat themselves, and we're seeing themes with folks that are you know, new to fintech, um, which is great and, and it's an advantage and there's a flywheel, but uh, new to investing or new to fintech saying, okay, this is brand new and, and social aspects of trading is not a new theme. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I'd say, I'd say Lamus, I said, let's just make sure that we learn lessons of the past and are asking the why now, because you know, talk <laughs> about Empire in 2010, 2011, first two founders that demoed the meetup, the fintech meetup in 2010, 
both had some modicum of what looks a lot like these socially enabled trading apps. One, iBillionaire, you could follow successful portfolios. Another, robo-invest, you could mimic other folks' portfolios. I mean, these are not new themes. So let's just look at at the why now, how technology is evolving. And like, please, let's not make the mistakes of the past because you know nobody wants to see this ride of fintech end early. Very true. Now, kind of a related question. NFTs, do you think they're over or underhyped? Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm going to go with wildly overhyped. All right. And I know it's lightning round, but just background. No one truly understands where this is going to land. Mm-hmm. And because you don't understand what the future potential does make it an interesting investment from a venture standpoint, but it doesn't make it an asset that belongs in, in your particular portfolio. All right. Now, how about two left? Dinner meal before a long night of work ahead. I would have been known to go through a case of diet Mountain Dew a day Jesus. back in the tech stars days. John, and so I have, a, I, have a, I have a wee bit of a caffeine, a wee bit of a caffeine addiction. Um, and so, yeah, that's my liquid courage for getting through a long day. There's coffee for that. Mountain Dew is like I don't, I don't even drink that anymore. My God, <laughs> anymore. <laughs> All right, now last one. Let's say the whole world is vaccinated. Everything is back to normal. What is the first big blowout vacation that you go on? You know what? I'm going to take a trip to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem with my father. My father's never been. And he was sort of locked down, felt like he was missing out mm-hmm. on his bucket list. So I just, I can't wait to do that in, in 2022. That's great. Yeah. And I'm, they're going to reach peak vaccination way before we will. So the timeline's looking good. Well, John, it was fantastic having you on the Wharton FinTech podcast today. This episode was a lot of fun. Very excited to get this out to our audience. And of course, hear you speak at the upcoming Wharton FinTech conference. Ryan, thanks for everything that you do to support FinTech and everything that the Wharton FinTech Club is doing to support FinTech. It doesn't go unnoticed by me and many others. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk. Thank you.